So, if I have my number incorrectly, this is episode 42 of The Brilliant. So we're continuing our conversation with Isaac Cronin, and at this point we've sort of evolved to the point where we're, each episode is about a year. So this is going to be the year 1970? Uh, actually, we went off to Paris in 1970 and talked about that. So this is uh, 71 through 72, which is pretty much a transitional period for a lot of reasons, because... Uh, it was clear, it became clear that the wave that hit uh, the world in 68 had really crashed and it was beginning to be obvious that that euphoric moment that we extended into two years was over and we had to figure out a new direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we weren't quite ready to do that. So what happened was there were a lot of, in the rock and roll world, there were a lot of bands calling themselves supergroups around that. So as our little joke... We thought, well, what if we can put together, we never used the word um, pro-C2, we always said situationist, what if we can put together a meeting of the minds of the smartest, most groovy uh, situationists in the Bay Area and form a new group because the um, uh, Council for the Eruption of the Marvelous was gone. That was like the main group at the time. Uh, And what if we put together from those people and other people supergroup that would really take on um, the task that we later defined as a, a, a real critique of the counterculture and the new left. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if we could put that group together? And obviously we could, because, like, you know, what's keeping us from doing it? <laughs> so, no, yeah, not like, a, we didn't have anything else to do. We, <laughs> no one was we, we weren't working, we weren't going to school, we were just, you know, freelance. We were still, I personally was still living off this tiny inheritance, and other people were getting by on almost nothing. Our nuts were so low that even if we weren't really didn't have an inheritance, we were spending a couple hundred dollars a month, literally, to live. So anyone could kind of join up the band, right? Okay, so setting the stage, so we we had um, Dan Hammer and I were from um, uh, Council for the Eruption of Marvelous. We had gone off to Europe together and come back after having met the Situationists, realizing we weren't going to become the American section of the Situationist International because, unbeknownst to us at that moment, the SI was, was imploding, um, and was later to uh, that that death was later to be announced in the book uh, translated Veritable Sison in the International by Gita Bohr, uh, Veritable Split, which came out um, actually in '71. We didn't know this at the time, but we hadn't heard much from France, so we thought, well, okay, we'll have to focus on America again. So there was Dan Hammer and I. There was Ken Knapp who had made his appropriate uh, self-criticism the year before. Mm-hmm. There was his sidekick from a small school in Ohio, Scheimer College, called Ron Rothbart, um, who's now a professional photographer taking really beautiful pictures of the mm-hmm. Bay, which he posts on Facebook, some of the nicest pictures I've seen in a long time. Um, and there was two other guys. Uh, one that was a bookchinist called Michael Lucas. He was a big gay rights advocate. And had known Murray Bookchin for a long time. And tragically, he died of AIDS, I heard. I hadn't seen him in years, but I heard that back. But he was a kind of um, dancing, uh, nightclubbing, disco situationist who uh, wasn't much of a writer, but he was he was fun and enthusiastic. And then there was a guy called John Adams, no relationship to the uh, <laughs> vice president president of the United States. Uh, he had a big beard. He wasn't a bear, though. He was, he was straight, but he was kind of academic. So, our goal was to create the most um, 
powerful, complete critique of the New Left movement, which included SDS, Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers, The Weather Underground, The Yippies, and, uh, and the Counterculture. And also, uh, it also contained a critique of the pseudo-critique of society uh, by Alvin Toffler, who was a futurist. Oh, and we yeah. were we were making a critique of that too as a fake as as a pseudo critique of the cybernetic welfare state. Okay. So this was an incredibly ambitious project, at least the way we set out to do it, which was going to be, you know, as brilliant as on the poverty of student life and as comprehensive as Herbert Marcuse, and um, <laughs> you know, a huge task. And um, suffice it to say that uh, Dan Hammer and I were kind of the the activist militant side, we wanted to get something out there. We thought it was really important. Whereas NAB and Rothbart were much more self-critical and would constantly find things wrong. So we would have endless meetings where people presented drafts. And eventually this material was published only on the Bureau of Public Secrets website. So you can actually find this critique um, of this of what we did in published by Ken NAB on... Hmm. When, when I was a younger man... Uh, and was very much pursuing as much of the, this material as I could find. I found two or three pamphlets by contradiction. Uh, pamphlets, yeah. um, like a thick, maybe a small book, a thick pamphlet about. I can't remember, but um, well, we, we never published the movement critique. Huh. Um, so our our main activity, anyway. So we would fight about this, and we fought and fought, and we had we had. Um, really uh, acrimonious meetings. Uh, John Adams was also an academic, and he was kind of in over his head. We just He was, he was a Ph.D. candidate. I, don't, I mean, at that point, you could really just say a few words, and if they were confusing enough and, and Hegelian enough, we would let you in the gang. <laughs> so John, John was kind of not so important. It was really a fight between Ron and, and Ken and Danny and I about whether we should publish this material. And it was all uh, authored uncredited, so it was all collaboration. There weren't any names attached to anything. Mm -hmm. So eventually, uh, we didn't publish anything. But at the same time, fortunately for us, and I was looking back on this history, there was an active uh, labor movement in San Francisco. There were three principal strikes in 1971. There was the cable car workers' wildcat strike, Mm. Uh, where they went against their transportation union and went out. And a lot of them were African-American, very militant, cool. I mean, they were all like they had these incredible uh, hipster looks and they were doing the cable car thing. And they were they were part-time entertainers back then, even more than now. Yeah. They would do this whole routine with the bells and, and this whole this whole thing. But they, they went on strike for higher wages. Um, and that was one strike. There was a social workers union, um, stri Wildcat strike, almost at the same time. And it turned out that one of the leaders of that strike was John Zerzan. So John Zerzan um, found a uh, leaflet, actually it was a comic that we did called Wildcat Comics, also on the Bureau of Public Secrets website. And I suppose we can put that up, I'm sure. It's already up, okay. So um, we met with some of these people, we handed it out. It was pretty funny. It was actually an improvement on the SI uh, Detournement of Comics in some ways. I uh, had some really funny images in it from Escape from the Chain Gang, a classic film from the 20s, and it, it, it was had it, it was well done. Anyway, they didn't like, the, the, the cable car drivers were not happy with what we did. They thought we were honing in on their mm -hmm. world and, you know, providing, you know, too much, uh, too much of a radical critique for what was more like bread and butter issues for them. Sure. But we did meet John Zerzan, and we kind of went through the same, it's my recollection, we went through the same routines we did with Ken Nab. He found us... We found him, I can't remember which, and 
he was defending his reformist position and we just said yeah okay you know if you want to have any more conversations with us you know you'll have to make a critique of that and i he made a critique i'm not sure if it was written or to us but we started palling around after that um and then there was a big strike um i just um did the research on this for the uh, telephone workers they were on strike for nine months the CWA, Communications Workers of America, and they won most of their demands. So we included them in this. At the same time, we did uh, a couple of these leaflets in, in conjunction with the guys from Point Blank, because by now we were fast friends. So we co-authored a couple of these uh, leaflets. And I was trying to remember what our point of view was at the time. And basically, because between us and Point Blank, we were the Situationist Movement in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. we thought that we were kind of like, you know, um, a president. We were like the, um, the ruler, the radical rulers of the Bay Area. So anything that happened, we had to comment on. Any event, any situation, we had to provide the Situationist perspective on what was going on. And pretty much we did. I mean, we were very, you know, active in that. But I wanted to uh, to uh, bring up just um, a bit of the history of the period, and I and I really did need to refresh my own memory on it. So there was also in 1971, uh, actually it's 72, but started in 71, a strike at an automobile assembly plant in Ohio called Lordstown that was really radical. There was a lot of violence. Uh, there was a lot of. Uh, they went against the UAW, which was very unusual, mm -hmm. an incredibly powerful union then and maybe even still. But they went out on strike, and they didn't win, but it was a very militant period. And there was also a postal strike that happened um, actually the next year. So there was a wildcat strike that started in New York where the postal workers hadn't had the right to even do collective bargaining. So the New York postal workers went out on strike. And at that point, Nixon ordered the... Army and the National Guard to deliver the mail. People have forgotten this. Whoa. They literally intervened. They would not, Nixon was very obviously anti-union. So they brought in the uh, the Army and the National Guard, like 20, it took like 10 times as many of them yeah, to of deliver course, the yeah. mail. And it was total chaos. I mean, the stock market dropped uh, dramatically in price and there was even talk <laughs> about closing the stock market. So at that point, we were thinking, oh, well, maybe this is 68 again. You know, <laughs> we were you know, dreamy guys, and, you know, this seemed like, you know, look at the power of the union, you know, to affect the stock market, and that sp strike spread nationally, uh, sporadically, so for eight days, the Postal Service was disrupted, and obviously, back then, we didn't have FedEx, we didn't sure. have DHL, it was, it was the only game factor. in town. It was the only game in town. It would be like if all those career services went out, or the internet, or something, right? It was yeah. a big deal. So, we thought, you know, okay, I mean, this is, um, if you can't have, you know, um, if you you know, the the, uh, the Vietnam War, um, this was a much more interesting movement to look at than the, the anti-Vietnam protest because it was actually following the blueprint the situation has laid out for uh, worker-student alliance or worker-intellectual alliance. And, of course, we were competing with every other Trotskyist and Bolshevik group, you know, and the embarrassing thing was they were saying very similar things. Really? They were they were certainly defending the Wildcat part, right? Sure. And so we didn't seem that cool in a way, mm -hmm. and that gave us pause. Um, the other um, way that the movement extended itself beyond um, this traditional worker protest was in the prison movement. So here you've got a totally non-student, non-essentially white movement rising up in the prisons uh, right around this time, 70, 71, and obviously incredibly influenced by the Black Panthers because, you know, that critique made perfect sense. And a lot of the Black Panthers who were members had come out of prison. So there was a kind of free flow between them. 
but the um, the person who made uh, the individual who made the biggest impact at that point, and he's still remembered in some circles, was George Jackson. So George Jackson was a guy, and I know this uh, history because he grew up uh, with my uh, co-author on a project called Bad James Carr, and I'll get back to that later. George Jackson had been in prison for a long time. He'd, com he'd committed armed robberies. No one was questioning that. He wasn't one of those guys who claimed he was innocent. I mean, in a way, he was proud of the fact that he'd done it. He was in prison. He had read Jean Genet, uh, the French intellectual, was very influenced by his very passionate, militant um, critique of the prison system. He wrote a book. Um, uh, he was part of the Soldad Brothers movement, and there was a couple of others who were uh, arrested for crimes in jail, who were, and their trial became a big deal. There were three of them, actually. And so his um, passionate plea for prison reform really touched the heart of a lot of um, white liberals. He was, he was their guy because he was literary. Yeah. And he was... Um, uh, had also So he was kind of a hodgepodge... Um, he wouldn't call it that, but he was kind of a hodgepodge of Franz Fanon, Wretched of the Earth, which influenced everybody, mm -hmm. Maoism, uh, Malcolm X, and the Black Panthers. That was the stew that he mm -hmm. put together. It, didn't, it wasn't really coherent, but it was just so angry, and there was some poetry in it, so it definitely mobilized a lot of people. But we didn't really know how to respond to that in the... wasn't really for you. No, in our current incarnation and contradiction. Mm -hmm. And it was so clearly, quote, reformist, that mm, because it was so focused on prison reform yeah because it was so focused on and it was also mm -hmm. part of the black panthers and we were deathly enemies of the black panthers so we couldn't really go too far in that so but what i was thinking about <clears throat> in the last couple of days and i wish i thought about it sooner was that in our idea of what was wrong with the radical movement at that point we were looking to blame the failure of the movement on the inadequacies of the left and it's kind of contradictory because even though we called them the pseudo left from the very beginning we were at the same time saying well they could have done better they should have done better and it, and it was a, a really fundamental obfuscation of the problem that we were confronting which was that our theory our ideas our critique and our lives were inadequate to the task and to project this onto others was real. So, in a way, I think that's why we never published it, because we realized that, you know, like, what were we really doing in blaming these people? We didn't call it our failure, but sure. for the failure of the movement. And we never acknowledged that at the time. You weren't capable of No, it. we weren't capable of, of, of going into that. Mm -hmm. And fortunately... This is the problem of young men. Yeah. Fortunately, ideas came along <laughs> from Europe once again that helped us with that. Mm. Uh, we'll get into that in the next episode. But we didn't have the, um, the, uh, the humility uh. or the ability to really take this on. So we literally projected the failure of that time onto the movement that we said would never succeed anyway. Mm. And didn't recognize the paradox there. Was there anyone else, anywhere else in the country, critiquing you? Or like, was there... A, yeah, uh, Critiquing us? Yeah. Or essentially critiquing perspectives that you sort of saw yourself in. Well, I mean, I think there was still the lingering Bookchinist critique of the situation. As mm -hmm. um, you know, that critique was that the workers' councils were not about daily life; they were about work, and you needed to have a, a larger critique of daily life. To that was one of the critiques that Bookchin had of the situation. As was that ever written? I think so. Hmm. Um, no idea where though. No. Okay. Um, but Michael um, Michael Lucas, who was the bookchinist, brought that into the, the conversation. Although, you know, once again, these people couldn't really ever 
they could talk, but they couldn't ever really write much. Sure. So that never, we never had to confront that. Anyway, um, we were so we, we did have if we hadn't if this workers' activism hadn't come along, we would have even dissolved sooner. Yeah, because we were complete loggerheads, and it was a huge personality clash too because. Danny and I were still the playful, Dadaist influenced guys, and uh, Rothbard and Nab were professorial, really, compared to us in, in their orthodoxy. So we were at, we were totally at loggerheads there. So fortunately, <clears throat> we found our way out of that, and the way we found our way out was that Dan Hammer's sister, um, um, Bessie, was someone who had a romantic and political attraction to black militants. She had, uh, before she uh, met and married James Carr, she had another um, black militant boyfriend who had been very active in the Vencer Amos Brigade. I mean, literally, their house uh, in San Jose that was a very nice middle-class house uh, became the center for ex-Vencer Amos Brigade militants, can you tell me? I don't know what that is. Okay, so the Vencer Amos Brigade were the guys and gals who volunteered to cut cane, sugar cane, in Cuba and literally went there for months at a time, snuck over to Cuba and cut sugar cane. And these were Americans as an act of defiance. As American Black Panthers mostly? or No, no whites and all, all, really? um, every, all leftists. And this Trotskyist. is late 60s uh, to early yeah, 70s? Yeah, this was 71. This was at its wow. height. They would literally sneak over there and cut uh, sugar cane for oh three or four months God. at a time. And it was backbreaking, of horrific work in tropical. It was the hardest work ever. And they would come back exhausted, but exalting Cuba. And they, had all, they all had great stories. None of which appealed to us, because sure. we knew he was, you know, a Stalinist who killed the anarchist opposition. Yeah. But So we used to have huge fights in the house. We would we could literally almost not go in there. So there was a situationist <laughs> contingent in one part of the kitchen, and then all the African Americans and Betsy in the other part of the kitchen. Oh, we were that's like fascinating. In, insults across each other. Um, so, Betsy uh, met uh, through her prison activism, an African American called James Jimmy Carr, who had been in jail with George Jackson, who had spent most of his adult life in prison. Once again, an armed robber who was convicted of crimes he actually did commit, and she she loved this guy, and he had uh, been um, paroled um, to Santa Cruz, where he had become, he had taught himself how to do calculus and other things, he was a total autodidact, at San Quentin, Folsom, Soledad, uh, California Men's Colony at San Luis Obispo, and so he got, through an African-American professor at Santa Cruz, who led the Black Studies Department, called Herman Blake, he got Jimmy into Santa Cruz. So Jimmy was actually a teaching assistant in calculus, straight, and he'd never gone to never gone to uh, college. Obviously, he'd never even gone to high school. I mean, <laughs> he was he was in the California penal system from the time he was twelve. Wow! Uh, so he got a job um, teaching math and going to school at Santa Cruz. Right when he got this was nineteen seventy one, and at the same time, this was the period when um, African American militants were very very sexy and. Uh, this is actually a true story, kind of shocked us because I mean we were into free love, but you'll see we went in the front door. Um, he had a keychain that he pulled out, and on this keychain there was like thirty keys, and these were all women who had given him their house key to come anytime he wanted. Now, I mean, I've never heard a story like that. I mean, yeah. that's pretty wild. wild. But as Jimmy said, it was based on Fidel Castro because in Cuba, women always left, according to Jimmy and the other black militants, women always left their back door unlocked. 
in the hope that Fidel would show up. And apparently he did. Oh, my God. Uh, I know. It's like, I mean, talk about crazy sexuality, right? But this is, this is true. Jimmy had the keychain, I saw. I mean, he was like, so he was a very handsome guy. He'd been a world-class weightlifter, literally bench-pressed 600 pounds, if you can imagine, right? His chest was so developed, you could put water glasses, <laughs> a water glass on each of his pecs, and it would sit there. It's like that kind of deal. Yeah. I mean, beyond the typical prisoner guy, sure. he was world-class weightlifter. He could have been in the Olympics if he hadn't been... In jail. In, in prison. <laughs> anyway, so Betsy um, <clears throat> Betsy fell in love with this guy, and she got rid of the other boyfriend. And so we were hanging out there because it was part of our route, and we went there for a home-cooked meal. Dan's mother uh, had also fallen in love with George Jackson, even though they were like 30 years apart, and she was a passionate correspondent with him. Um and her letters, I think some of them are in um, the Soul Dad Brothers book. So we met Jimmy and <clears throat> didn't quite know what to make of him. Although the immediate appeal was, oh, okay, well, here's a real radical. Mm-hmm. I mean, after dealing with Nab and Rothbart, uh, we were ready for some, you know, we were returned to some real activism, I guess you'd have to call it, or action. So we met Jimmy. And one of the first conversations that um, we had, we were talking about Malcolm X. And of course, you know, this is a seminal and crucial and essential figure for the history of radicalism in the United States. But I was on my high horse, so I said something like, yeah, you know, Malcolm X was cool, but he wasn't really that radical. And (laughs) there was like silence. And there's this guy sitting there and is like, you know, musket. He couldn't even wear regular pants because his legs were so big. He had to wear overalls, literally. I mean, and a watch cap, you know, and he's got a shaved head and, you know. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, I could just break your neck. <laughs> and um, Dan jumps up and he says, oh, no, Isaac, it's very irrational. But it turned out that even though it was a really stupid thing to say and wasn't even true, somehow, because I was like this little white guy saying that, but trying to be, like, honest, that actually kind of broke the ice. And that made him say, well, if you know, he's obviously, he might be wrong, but at least he speaks his mind. So that, I think, kind of helped a lot to speed up the process. So he, we just started hanging out, which is back then smoking dope and, you know, drinking rum, whatever, from Cuba, of course. And smoking, <laughs> c- uh, smoking cigars. That's so I mean, like, I'm like, you know, 23 here, right? Mm-hmm. And he's six years older, so he's 30 seven years older, and uh, he started telling these most incredible stories. Um, A story like um, they were in Soledad um, in the maybe late 50s, early 60s, and they had a riot. They rioted for something. And so um, they got them up and they they ran into the shower in in the gym. And so they called the National Guard. No one even knows this. And they started shooting into the... the, um, shower and they shot every tile off the wall but then they realized that jimmy james was only 17 and if they killed him as a juvenile he wasn't even supposed to be in soledad he was there illegally he was supposed to be in a juvenile facility that would be a huge scandal so event so they just said okay come on out you know we're not going to kill you guys they were going to kill them though he thought so he told stories like that that no one had ever heard of, right? Yeah. Much more wild than any of the stories I'd ever heard about prison. So we, you know, developed a, a relationship of trust and discovered, of course, that he had spent a lot of his prison time reading the same books that we had. 
And by same books, I mean Bakunin, Nietzsche, Hegel, Marx. Here was a guy who took the classic self-improvement uh, uh, program in prison many steps further in terms of the radicality of what he read, mm -hmm. but also how smart he was. Uh, you know, just really smart, quick, um, curious, clever, funny. You know, someone we... I mean, there wasn't like really any difference between us, we thought, intellectually. Like, we were just equals, pretty much. I mean, not pretty much, we were. And so, this was really exciting. So, uh, after, you know, a week or two, things moved quickly then, we, I just said, well, I think we should write your memoir. Uh, and he said, oh, no, I don't want to do that. My story, you know, this is horrible. You know, you don't want to hear my stories. He was really, really reluctant to do it. Um, we had no idea why, because, you know, like, why wouldn't you want to tell your story? I mean, we'll do the work. He said, so eventually he said, you know, these stories are horrible. You know, I'm not proud of what I did. It was what I did to survive. This isn't really that cool. Uh, plus, I'm not a writer, and I won't do any of the writing. And we said, okay, we'll write it. Um, we'll do the writing. We'll just re we'll record tapes, which back then was real to real, of course. <laughs> so, um, when did the cassette format come? Seventies, I guess. Yeah, mid seventies. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we had a reel to reel tape recorder, and he had to be stoned and or drunk to do it. Well, <laughs> it, but it wasn't because it was fun for him. It was the opposite, right? He, it was really painful, and so we sat down and, with very little prompting um, from us, recorded about thirty hours of tape. Um, and it covered his whole life from when, I mean, the book starts out, and his life started out when I was nine years old, I burned down my elementary school, and we said, oh, come on, you didn't do that. He said, no, <laughs> it was true, and um, he, um, his, the, the coach had taken a leather jacket from him uh, that he wore to school, taken it away from him, so to get back at the coach, he uh, went to the coach's office and uh, threw a lighted match with something flammable into the broke the glass and set the school on fire. I don't know how much of it burned, but a part of it burned. Um, so, I mean, that became the opening sentence of the book, which is pretty pretty good hook. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty good hook. So, anyway, there was a lot of amazing stories he told. Um, we were pretty much spellbound the whole time. I mean, one of the most interesting things about prison back then was that before there was so much street slang, which we have now, hip-hop slang, and it's all kind of mishmashed together, everyone knows it, there was this prison slang. And the prison right. slang was extremely different from what everyone else on the street talked about. And <clears throat> the oral culture was very strong there, and one of the ways it would manifest itself would be that these guys were all, would say, be locked up for some infraction, infraction in solitary. <laughs> And uh, they were specifically designated liars. And these were guys who told stories that were just so incredibly uh, vivid and lucid that that would be their entertainment. And so they, to egg them on, they would yell down the hall, Hey, Smitty, tell us a lie. And then he would say something and they would say, Oh, you're lying. Don't lie like that. And he would go, of course he was lying, but he would tell these incredibly <laughs> these were some, I think some, I wish those stories were recorded. Yeah. It's really a shame that we did have a, t we did have a, um, a record put out by Folkways, which was one of the original um, ethnic folk uh, record companies. Right. It's around forever. Yeah. Of Jimmy's original recordings. We have 45 minutes of that. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And his voice is great. Fabulous. And, uh, it, it's amazing slang that they really invented. These people were incredibly creative, and um, I, and and once again, of course, now that's all gone because I think that what well, prison language is very similar now with all the hip hop. Maybe uh, I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, talk to anyway. So we we managed to uh, get him to tell his whole story, um, and a lot of it was tough. He admitted to a couple of um, murders 
that we didn't put in the book that he was never charged with in jail where he was in fights. Uh, people were killed. Either he did it or he was involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it's brutal beyond belief. And one of the reviews um, of the book said this was the most relentless and honest account of uh, evil and in an autobiography they'd ever read. And I really feel that's a fairly accurate statement uh, because he didn't really blame the system, although the system created this situation. Yeah. But he accepted responsibility for doing certain things that were that were choices. So it's a very interesting existential blend of accepting responsibility and acknowledging that he was forced to make those choices in the first place. In a way. I, I definitely want you to expand a, a bit more on sort of his intelligence and his politics that he obviously formulated in prison because there have been some prison memoirs since then, uh-huh. since this book, that are also like equally if not more evil yeah than, there than was this that book, book by monsters the, uh, the, the monster one. right yeah. yeah that one definitely yeah and um, any of the american history I think act stuff what we left too. out though it probably <laughs> we'd give it a run for in. its money he would give a run for his money yeah. you know, because we left out some of the most brutal detail um so so he came out so when jimmy was um yeah we left we, there's a lot here when jimmy was um, in prison and out in, in 1771, he ran with the Black Panthers. He was actually one of uh, Huey Newton's bodyguards, and he was very he was involved in that ideology. Although he had his own suspicions, but he definitely that was the only game in town, really. And so it kind of made sense. He you know he'd read Franz Fanon, he'd read um, not so much Mao, but you know he'd he'd read the standard leftist catechism, and so he was somewhat um, taken by that. Uh, and when we met him, we spent a lot of time going over why we thought that didn't work. And because he'd read Bakunin and the Anarchists, because he'd been prepped on his own, because he'd had those interests, I said, did they let you read that in jail? He said, they didn't know what those Russians were talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even get it, right? Mark's okay, maybe. But Bakunin, who the hell is that? Yeah. To a prison official in San Quentin. They don't know what he's doing, right? It was below the radar. You know, because he had done his own work and because I think he was just a free spirit and wasn't really into this to be part of an organization. He was into it uh, because he saw, you know, the systematic systematic evils of the system. He was willing to or able to abandon those ideas without like us, you know, twisting his arm. I think the other thing was it was just that, you know, we were really asking him questions. He liked the decline and fall of the spectacular commodity uh, economy pamphlet on Watts by the Situationists a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was an incredible organizing tool, and I think it still could be. I mean, I, it's, it's an amazing... Well, maybe it's out of date, but for, at that time, it really spoke to him uh, because he grew up in Watts. He was in jail when that happened, but he understood... You know, that was a very powerful... Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody else had things like that to offer, right? That kind of really radical, appreciative analysis. Um, so it wasn't really a battle. It was just kind of a process um, that we went through together, and there was a lot of discussions, but, you know, he grasped most of it really quickly. It wasn't really that... It wasn't a battle to get him to do that. I mean, we would have done the book anyway. Sure. Yeah, you know, of course. But, I mean, it just made it easier. Mm-hmm. Is that... No, that's fine. Yeah, okay. Go on. So, um, he, he narrates uh, a section where he talks about George Jackson, and this was one of the most, I think, at the time, now it appears to be tame, scandalous parts of the book, was that here was this guy, George Jackson, who had been completely lionized, mostly by, by whites, as uh, a man, a hero, who could do no harm, 
And yet, in the book, he's presented at, in the beginning, because he goes through an evolution like everybody else, as a thug, really. And, and a thug in the sense that um, when someone took a weight off his pile of weights, he tried to kill him. And he tried to kill him by biting his jugular vein <laughs> on the yard. Now, this is not the behavior of an altruistic radical. It's the behavior of a guy who has had a horrible life, and it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So we put that detail in the book, and we put other details that were similar. And, of course, we talk about his evolution, and they were in a cell together for a long time, so they knew mm. each other really well. We talk about this evolution of, of George and Jimmy, <clears throat> but that, interestingly enough, made the book pretty much unacceptable at that time to the liberal establishment. Mm. And the way that that manifested itself was, uh, and I'm jumping ahead, after we finished writing the book and went out looking for a literary agent, which you had to have, uh, none of the liberal agents who had done um, you know, any material like that would touch mm. the book, and they never said why. But we knew, because it was a really commercial book, that they didn't want to touch it. So um, we finished the tape recordings, um, and there's, I think, too much to go. Unless you want to go over specifics, there's, there's just a whole world in there that mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's in the book. So no, people I mean, people should, people, people should read the book. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like they should. Yeah, I mean, and it's come out in a new edition. Um, we finished the book, and um, in April of 1972, so it took us, I don't know, three, four months to do all that, because we didn't do it all the time. And, um, and I got a phone call, I don't remember the exact day in April, about six in the morning, from um, Joan, who was um, Dan and Betsy's mother, saying, the worst has happened, Jimmy's dead. And obviously a huge shock uh, to me, to us, and didn't really know what to do or think at that moment, but it turned out that he had been uh, killed by the Black Panthers. And this is one of the clearest cases of a political assassination being traced back to its origin because the two guys who killed him, they jumped out of the bushes with sawed-off shotguns and classic gangland style, blue in half, basically. Um, drove off but they were and went south on 101 from San Jose in a car that people had seen, and they were caught. And they were card-carrying members of the Black uh, Panther Party, and they'd been keeping their receipts, so it was obviously a contract killing. <laughs> and, and in California, um, if you are caught and convicted of a contract killing, there's no parole. So I assume they're still in jail. That would be like, what's that, 71, 29, 45 years later, they're still in prison. Uh, it's either you're either executed or you're in life in prison for a contract killing. So then, of course, the question is uh, why did Huey Newton, who ordered the killing, obviously kill him? And there were details about what he did that um, I think there's basically three theories of why he was killed. One is, and I, I don't really know, this is not the kind of thing he would talk about with us, because sure. why implicate us in his secret life, or past life, that he was stealing money from the Angela Davis Defense Fund. <laughs> Which he may have been. I mean, mm -hmm. one is he was a dog, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you never know. One is he killed a Black Panther... Um, called Fred Bennett in the mountains in San of Santa Cruz. That did happen. He was killed. And this was a way to get rid of him because maybe they didn't want that coming back to the organization. And the third one is it was just a classic COINTELPRO program. And COINTELPRO was the J. Edgar Hoover effective counterintelligence program to infiltrate leftist groups from liberal ones like um, Martin Luther King all the way to the most radical. 
so that when so many of the group's members were agents, they could spread what's called a rat jacket or a dirty jacket, jacket reputation about somebody and convince others that it was true, and then they would believe it based on almost nothing but innuendo, and then they would decide this person was a rat and kill him. So one of those three things happened, but in any case, it was clear that... Um, it had been ordered by Hugh and Newton because there would have been no other reason for it to happen. And Jimmy had been very close to him. Um, he gave us some interesting detail about his life, which is in the book. But essentially, he was called by his, the members the Emperor. And he had a horrible drug. Um, he had various drug addictions. And he had a three-foot cocaine mirror, which he drove around in the back of his Lincoln Continental in the trunk with. So there was a lot of cocaine going on there. Big surprise. I mean. Anyway, so tragedy happened. Um... It was, you know, we were devastated, um, totally surprised that this happened, um, of course. Although Jimmy used to say, I'm not going to live more than two more years. I just feel like, he never said why, but he was one of those guys who had, you know, he'd been involved in so many murders, counter-murders, in jail, so much intrigue. I mean, people have to remember, this was a very heavy time. Lots of people were being killed in and out of the Black Panthers, many, many deaths, um, a lot of paranoia. Everyone was armed. It was a very dangerous, difficult time for that group. On the white side, nothing. I mean, we were so far from that, we just didn't right. have anything to do with that. I mean, between 70 and 76, it was many, many Black Panthers were many, killed. Many, dozens, dozens. Yeah. And so he, in a way, he was just fell in the line of combat. Right. And, you know, okay, so a couple days after he died, <clears throat> there was um, a wake for him. And it was very interesting because it brought together the San Jose liberal crowd of the Hammers, mm -hmm. uh, Guys just out of prison, uh, the Vance Ramos Brigade. Uh, it was a very eclectic group, and this was a very elegant house, the Hammer House, and still, you know, elegant house in San Jose. So we were having this wake. Everyone was obviously totally devastated. And about five minutes into the first um, eulogy delivered by this guy, um, Phil, who had been in Cuba. Uh, as a Vince Ramos Brigade guy, an African-American guy, um, all of a sudden, all these gunshots start going on, like hundreds of rounds of gunshots. And we're thinking, oh, God, we're all going to die. They've come to kill us. And so everyone hits the floor. Everyone's all dressed up. We all dive on the floor. And, like, it goes on for, like, two minutes, gunshots. And so then finally the gunshots stop. And Phil gets up, the courageous one, and looks out the window to see there's nobody there. So, what the hell? Then we start sm smelling this smoke, and there start, we start smell hearing a fire. So, basically what happened was, Dan and I, about an hour before the party, were asked to burn a bunch of milk cartons in the fireplace to get rid of them, which is what you did back then. You burnt your trash, and they were covered with wax, so they got really hot. <laughs> oh so, they got really hot. God. And, and then the, then, but then the fire went out, you know. It, sure. we, you know, it just stopped burning, and it, it was an hour before the party. So, there actually had been, a, there was a hole in the chimney, and and so some sparks got out of the chimney and into the eaves. And Jimmy had slept with a 9mm pistol under his pillow. And he had a few hundred rounds of ammunition stuck up in the eaves. And they all went off and blew a hole oh in the God. ceiling. But we thought this was cool because it was like he was sending himself off, right? Sure. It's like it was his ghost. It's I mean, 21 I'm sure it was. Gun salute, it's 21 yeah. gun salute. I mean, and so it was like a wild story. And it's and a really it's a crazy wild story. Yeah. And then the party just went on. You know, the, <laughs> the police and the, the, the sure. police knew what had happened in this house. The fire department, they came, they put the fire out. But somehow they were really respectful. I guess they, you know, I mean, he'd actually made friends with a lot of people. 
people and he was like such an athlete that he kind of cut through that plus they just had a baby he was a father he had a job he was working in construction he had given up his old life i'm sure he would never have gone back you know to the old way right i'm, I'm positive except there's one story so we were big martial arts fans we love kurosawa so uh, just as we were finishing the book to celebrate, we went to San Francisco, and right near the corner of Fillmore in California, it's gone, there was a movie theater called The Clay. And we went and saw uh, Yojimbo together, which is one of the great Kurosawa samurai films. And he had one of those old uh, Toyota Land Cruisers that looked exactly like uh, a, a, the original Range Rover or Jeep. It was nothing like it is now. It was a tiny mm -hmm. little Jeep vehicle. <laughs> And very rugged. And so we got in the car, we parked right in front of the theater, and right to the left of the clay was the Bank of America. So he, he opens up the glove box, and there's his 9mm. He says, well, in the spirit of that movie, would you guys come in with me and rob this bank? And he pulls the pistol out, the 9mm pistol out. He says, because frankly, I've got nothing to lose. Oh, my God. You know, all you guys have to do is hold the bag, and I'll do the rest. I don't know if he was just like joking, calling her bluff, fucking with, you, yeah. fucking with us, probably fucking with us. <laughs> but no, but I mean, if we'd said yes, he would have oh, done yeah. it. I mean, this is the kind of guy he was, right? I mean, so we just said, well, frankly, don't you want to finish the book? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> nerds! Yeah, nerds. No, but I mean, the thing is, we could easily have died. We weren't prepared to do this. Of I mean, this not. was like, you know, right in the, in the heart of San Francisco, they could scramble, a, you know, a, a cop really quickly. So anyway, we said, nah, you know, okay, we're, we're chickens, you know. Yeah. Let's, anyway, so obviously there was still this kind of pull towards that life because he had robbed, you know, dozens of banks just that way and gotten away with it <laughs> anyway so so then um we were pretty much devastated about that um and um put the book aside for a while and just to finish with the book basically what happened was we couldn't find an agent uh for the reasons i mentioned um they just really it was just too hot to handle really it was a hot potato you know because it was just I mean, maybe they didn't like it because it was so brutally honest, but I think mainly it was the George Jackson thing that you just could not defile someone of that stature, even if you were there, even if it was true. Nobody ever said it wasn't true. They just, nobody said he's lying, he made mm -hmm. it up, because he didn't. He was there. He didn't make up anything. They just didn't want it published. So eventually, through a series of publishing connections, uh, we were introduced to a kind of maverick... Um, in publishing called Herman Graf. And Herman Graf was a very offbeat, iconoclastic New Yorker who had worked <clears throat> as the sales director for the most uh, avant-garde publishing company in the United States that actually published the autobiography of Malcolm X called Grove Press. Grove Press published uh, Beckett. They published John Yeah, they were, big, they were a big name. They were a hugely successful publishing company run by one crazy speed freak Jewish guy called Barney Rossett. And they had huge success. In fact, Herman had found Confederacy of Dunces on the junk pile at the University of Louisiana, paid $3,000 for the book. So he had a great eye for the offbeat. Mm -hmm. um, he was eventually fired three times by Barney Rossett. And the last time he was fired... Barney Ross had said, don't worry, Herman, it's only personal. <laughs> so Herman started his own imprint called Whirlwind Press, and we, we met him, and he said, this is a fabulous book. Uh, he made us change a bunch of names of the prison officials for libel suits because basically we said in the book, okay, on such and such a day, the prison officials brought in the Nazis, the Aryan Brotherhood, and said, if you go and f start a fight and then run back, we'll kill this person. 
So we had that kind of detail in the book, which was all, you know, what Jimmy was willing to say it was true, but they made us change some of those names because it was that accurately uh, calling people murderers for specific incidents. So, um, anyway, Herman said, yeah, I'll publish the book, uh, but I, I'm a small press. I need a distributor. I can't, I'll, I'll pay for the printing and I'll do all that, but you need to have a distributor. So I need to make a distribution deal. So he said the biggest and the most important distributor of paperbacks, because it was going to be a mass market paperback original, which in that era meant it was going to be much more widely distributed in every drugstore, every bus station. Not, you know, as many more books were sold in non-bookstores through that mm-hmm. method of cheap books than, than through bookstores. He said Dell is the best and the biggest they were. So we'll get them to do this book. So we thought, oh, that's cool. Okay. Um, this was 1975 because I jumped ahead to finish the story of the book. So um, it took us that long. In fact, we went to France in between and tried to find a... We thought, well, we'll do this classic route. Mm-hmm. No one loves us in America. We'll find right, a European. Right. So we met with some people, and they actually thought it could work, but that we should go back and try America one more time. Mm-hmm. They actually said, we can get this published in France. And it was later published in France and went through like 10 printings in five editions. Mm-hmm. It was a mini bestseller in France. Mm-hmm. So it actually was that kind of European cachet. But, so anyway, Herman said, yeah, we'll get Dell, they're the biggest, they're the best, I'll print 130,000 copies, and we'll, you know, we'll take the world by storm. So, we thought, great. And so, then the book came out, and we got a copy. Um, And something totally weird had happened, which is that uh, Dell had not read the book before they published it. And they didn't really know what was in it. So, at the last minute, before they published it, the same kinds of liberals... Uh, New York white publishing liberals had read the book and freaked out. And they thought, we really don't want to be associated with this book. We've signed a contract, so we'll be sued. But can we sabotage this book? Is there a way to make sure that nobody really, excuse me, reads the book? And so what they did was they disowned the book and made it impossible to reorder. And the way they did that was they didn't give it an ISBN number. Oh, really? Yeah, they didn't give it an ISBN number. At the last minute, they pulled the title page that they had that was typeset, and they put a selectric typed title page, you can tell from the from the copy. They, not only did they not um, give it an ISBN number, they didn't list it in their catalog uh, at all in any way, and they took their name off the book. So it said DD, but if you didn't know what that was, Dell Distribution, um, you couldn't find it. So there was no way for the book to continue. They mm-hmm. literally sabotaged the book. And at that point, you know, we were devastated. Also, they shipped a huge number of books to Canada instead of the U.S., like half the books, mm. which is just ridiculous, right? What's the point, right? Uh, we said, well, you got to sue these guys. You know, I mean, it's like they've destroyed this book. I mean, they, it could be a bestseller, you know, whatever. And he refused because he said they were too powerful and he would lose. So the book literally was sabotaged by the publisher. And I know we talked about this before and you said maybe there are other incidents, but I haven't heard of any. Uh, in, quite in this way where the book is actually published in order to suppress yeah, it. Yeah, I've, I've heard of other cases that usually come out of some part of the freakish underground uh-huh. that tries to emerge into the public and right. and are slapped down, right. basically. So, essentially, you know, the book did have found success. It was also translated into German. There was a German edition. Um, it was a Spanish edition, but essentially it had success in France, and I actually went over there before the book came out and worked with the translator and tried to bring some of this African American slang into French, which is really tough. Mm-hmm. But I spent a fair amount of time, and I think the translation was actually pretty much okay. Mm. Anyway, so um, that's kind of the legacy of that um, story. Um, and, you know, it, it continues to be, I think, an upsetting book in some ways. I think it still has legs. A new edition was published. Um, there was a, a an anarchist edition um, that was published. 
after it went out of print, and then Carolyn Graf uh, became an Herman republished it again, so it's more or less been continuously in print since 1975. Yeah. And as far as Jimmy's legacy, I think you, you can look, look looking back, like you said, there was just this extreme wave of violence. A lot of it fairly nonsensical um, that happened during that period. So, um, kind of, is this a good stopping point? I'm yeah, sure. that's great. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, what's uh, what's up for next episode? So, next episode is seventy two, seventy three, where, <clears throat> when in doubt, uh, lacking uh, critical ideas, move back, go back to France. <laughs> we realized that we we needed to renew our our bond with France. We went back twice in seventy two and seventy three. One time after Jimmy was um, was killed, actually, I'd, I'd like to add one kind of footnote to this. I just remembered a kind of personal note, which is that um, after he was killed, um, I decided, along with my girlfriend, that we should escape because at that point, because we had written a critique of the Black Panthers that was in the book, we didn't really know. This was our fantasy, of course, that maybe something we'd said had gotten out to the Black Panthers, mm. uh, thinking they would be responding to this intellectual mm-hmm. critique with violence. So we, um, my girlfriend and I, moved um, from San Francisco to Santa Cruz, which was actually closer to where he'd been killed. It's not really brilliant. Um, and we moved into a boarding house that was owned by a friend of, of Jones, and I went back to commercial fishing, and in this period, um, I rediscovered my passion for food because I took over the cooking at the boarding house I was staying at where lentil soup was on the menu every night, and I just really, at a certain point, I said, okay, I'm not going to complain, can I just start cooking for the 15 surfers who are in the, in the uh, boarding house? And the only cookbook in the house at the time was this very cryptic, comprehensive dictionary of French cooking in English called La Russe Gastronomique. So I started making uh, very elaborate French meals for $2 a person in ingredients for all the surfers in the house. And I remember one day uh, I was in the kitchen and two African Americans came to the door and I just ran. I, I was just running, running, running. I just ran away. I thought they were there to kill me, and it turned out they were the goodwill guys who'd come to pick up a. Uh, oh but but I but you know I mean really I was, yeah. it was kind of not totally unrealistic to think that sure. something we'd done or it was said, in the realm of the possible. It was one. It was it was exaggerated and a little narcissistic, <laughs> but it was in the realm of the possible. So I kind of like to end that, that yeah, period with that good. note. So. Well, good. Okay. okay. Thank you very much. Bye.